So what is Fulcro RAD? Uh, RAD stands for Rapid Application Development. And the RAD tooling, I mean, it's currently in alpha. And mm -hmm. essentially, it's, it's, it's sort of where my mind went from the very beginning when I started building Fulcro of, of sort of the end point I wanted to reach. Um, there, there are a number of things you do when you're building most business applications. You know, you have to come up with your schema. Uh, you have to come up with your UI. A lot of the UI is very boilerplate -y, right? It's a bunch of mm -hmm. forms, right? I've got a hundred different tables and I've got a customer support person that might need to muck with half of those that aren't ever seen by the user, right? In those form, mm -hmm. in that form, right? I, 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 yeah. I'm going to have to, like the, the size of, of your admin interface often dwarfs the, the size of your your actual application um and most of it is just that really simple like you know get the data look at the data modify the data add some extra controls to to a form or a report right mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of what you do so um i mean the, the what we talked about in the last couple of episodes about where fulcro came for, from in terms of trying to right. trying to make things simpler in terms of getting the data, uh, keeping the data normalized, talking back and forth, right? All those things were necessary to then get to the next step, which is once you have this ident and this query and um, a place to hang uh, information, you know, metadata, so to speak, not not closure mm -hmm. metadata, but, but data about the data, mm -hmm. um, a place to put that, well, now it's pretty easy to imagine uh, generating things from those statements of, of fact. So for example, what, what RAD does, RAD has several modules um, and the central concept uh, has been explored in, in a number of different libraries. The idea is I'm going to declare my data model in a way that's purely declarative. It's not tied to any particular database. It's just trying to capture the, the necessary minimal nuances of my data model. Here's what I want in this entity. Here's how I want that to connect to that, right? Edges and nodes. Um, so it's graph centric, but most databases are, you know, are normalized. Even a document database, uh, you know, will typically have values in there that are IDs of other documents, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that your data system is going to be nodes with edges is pretty easy. Um, and so what you do in RAD is you define attributes. So it's, it's RAD is attribute centric uh, in the same way RDF is. So RDF is a like the web semantic web kind of thing. We're we're basically I don't know closure keywords come from right. A, a, an individual fact has a namespace and a name. Right, a keyword mm -hmm. can represent some fact in the world. Gov dot IRS slash social security number, something like that. That, mm -hmm. that represents mm -hmm. a particular fact in the world. Um, and a fact could also be a to one edge, a to many edge, right? Uh, um, uh, person slash spouse is a to one edge to another person, unless, you know, you believe in polygamy, in which case maybe it's to many edge, but, um, either way it's, it's an edge in a graph. Um, perhaps that's person spouses, <laughs> I guess, I guess that would be your to many edge and person spouse would be your, your to one edge. So the idea is you model things in these attributes. And then from that, we should be able to generate everything from schema for a particular database. If you, if you, right, you, you could just translate that list of, of generic 
declarative model to an SQL schema, to a datomic schema, to a document database schema. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you have the schema, you should also be able to look at those attributes and generate a network API where you could query all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And then if we also know what uh, in that attribute model, which of those attributes identify things, then we should also be able to submit minimized diffs of saves and write mm-hmm. a save algorithm. And so that's in fact what RAD has. So RAD has a, a datomic adapter. It has sort of a very, very alpha SQL adapter. I don't currently use an SQL database uh, for any projects. So that one's not fully baked, but it works. Um, it, it doesn't work for everything, but it, it shows the promise of, hey, if somebody really wants to use SQL with this, here's refine this, right? Fix up this, this plugin and here's a start. Um, and so for the Datomic plugin, which is what I use as my backend databases right now, uh, the Datomic plugin, you plug it in and it can auto-generate your schema. It can auto-generate your uh, query API. It can auto-generate your save API. Um, and then there's a UI plugin that can auto-generate forms and reports. So basically you define this attribute model and then you can declare a form and a report declaratively. You don't have to actually write in the UI and all of the network interactions ha- handled for you. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the core concept. And then I've got some base principles that I'm trying to follow. Uh, one of them is you're not locked into anything. At, at its core, it's just base Fulcro. I mean, you're locked into Fulcro, right? <laughs> you're using yeah. Fulcro. That's, that's a base dependency. Um, but if you don't like the schema it generates, eh, make your own. Yeah, it's it's the 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 building your schema for you is a rapid prototyping feature. It's not meant to be something you have to use. Um, so it's got a validation mode where you can just say, you know, do the attributes match what what's in your database, right? So that it doesn't generate the schema. It just checks to make sure that you've declared the attributes consistently with your schema. Um, at least the data, the Datomic plugin has that. The SQL plugin doesn't have a check feature yet, um, but it does have a schema generation. I was to say, if you want to opt out of the network API generation, it's trivial to do. There's no re- real reason to do so, actually, because you, you're going to add any number of your own Pathom resolvers, and the ones that are generated are, are very basic. Um, but, but nothing ties you into Hairball. There's not tens of thousands of lines of code in this library. In fact, it's I'd say it's probably under 2,000 lines total. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, because what it's trying to do is just give you the the core central things, but then give you escape hatches everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You're not stuck with the generated UI. You're not stuck with the schema. You're not stuck with the network API. It just stands up things for you that are pretty good, you know, production quality things that you can use. Um, and then uh, there's kind of an incremental level of taking over things you can do um, that's that's trivial. Right, it's meant to be super easy to escape from any of the automated stuff it does. So where it's doing things nicely for you, great, use it. Where it's not working so well for you in a particular scenario, well, you're in Fulcro, make a Fulcro component. Right, you're in Pathom, make a Pathom resolver. Like it's it's very easy to just take what it gives you as as hey, that was nice. I didn't have to write that, and when it doesn't work for you, well, it didn't hurt you. Right. So I declare all of this stuff, as you mentioned, in my, I don't know, are they like maps? And then I just say, you know, this is this is my keyword. And I just declare all of this stuff and all of those things that you mentioned, the UI, the transactions, the schema, 
they're just coming out of this, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Right. And, and I, I, everything's based on open maps. So when you declare an attribute, there is a macro for declaring it. But all the macro is doing is making sure you always include the two required things, the name of mm-hmm. it, the type of it. Um, and then from there, you're just, it's just an open map, namespaced keywords. So plugins can just invent additional things to hang in this map. So that say, for example, you want to define a security model. You can add a Lambda to some keyword in that attribute map to say, when this thing, when we try to read this thing, run this function and tell me what the environment currently is, right? Maybe what their session is or whatever. And I'll tell you true or false or whether or not it's okay to read this, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. that's the idea is it's, it's just kind of extensible in every direction as well, because everything's just declared in these open maps. Right. Yeah. And I know you also created a video uh, explaining right a bit. So we will link this in the show notes so people can maybe take a look. Yeah. I think that video is still up. I may have taken it. I, I've, I made one early on that was, is very different than what we have now. And I don't okay. remember what I've recorded in terms of, of updates for that. Um, I think I've recorded one or two, um, newer ones. Uh, but there is a demo. That's probably the better thing for us to link to. There is a, a, a runnable demo that you can you can go and play with, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's usually the most up to date resource uh, for for exploring it. Yeah. So I mean, the the things that that Rad comes with uh, are the base library, which is kind of the the architecture of Rad, and then there, it has a number of plugin libraries. Um, uh, so that you can plug in database plugins, you can plug in UI plugins, or then you could, of course, make up your own sort of things that you wanted to add in. But but those are the two, the two sides currently that it has support for plugging things into. So that on the database plugin side, we've got a Datomic and an SQL sample adapter. We may soon have a Redis adapter. Um, I had a collaborator that was working on one of those, but I don't know what, what the status of that is. And then on the UI side, currently, I just have a semantic UI plugin um, uh, that renders everything using semantic UI web. Um, now a cool thing about the, the front end architecture now that, now that I'm thinking about it. So Fulcro supports, uh, you know, all of the JavaScript environments, right? Uh, web native, uh, electron, um, and the inspect tool actually has a Chrome plugin and it has a WebSocket based electron app version. So the tooling will work with any of those environments. Now, RAD, the core library, says nothing about the rendering environment at all. Um, it, it basically knows when you make a form, right, it's got the macro you know, for defining a form, but, but all that macro does is emit a Fulcro component, right? It's just a, a convenience thing that makes it less typing. So you could, you could make a form without that macro easily. Well, not easily because there's a lot of, of stuff it generates for you, but it, it, it just saves you typing. So when you create that thing, if you don't give it a render body, right? Remember, you're making a focal component. So technically, you could put rendering statements in the body of that form and take over the rendering. That's one of the escape hatches. I don't like what you're rendering, so I'm going to take it over and do it myself. Mm-hmm. But let's say you just say, I want a form with these attri- these facts on it. I want the person's name, first name, last name, and, and phone number. That's what I want on this form. That's really all you have to declare. Um, and then you have to put it, of course, into a router. Um, RAD comes with uh, a routing system that knows how to route to these various things. And in fact, if you install the HTML5 
if you're using the DOM, you can install an HTML5 uh, a history plugin that enables full URL-based um, uh, HTML5 routing, where it records not only which screen you were on, but what parameters were selected on the screen. So let's say you're on a report and you've sorted by last name and you've selected row three on page five. The URL represents that. You copy that URL, open a new tab and paste it. You'll see exactly that view on the, on the new screen. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, but that's tied into the, the, the DOM side of DOM slash browser side of things. If, if you don't mm -hmm. have a DOM or browser, you're in say a react native environment uh, you'd install just a regular little history thing that just knows how to go back and forward, that sort of thing. It wouldn't know how to link, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the rendering plugin, therefore, can be a DOM-based plugin. It could be a React Native-based plugin, right? It could be it could be a, a a JVM lib curses render to my text terminal plugin, right? Rad mm -hmm. doesn't really care what does the rendering, um, and so I think that's a that's an important thing to understand about 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 it as well is you could rapidly prototype any one of those environments without having to write hardly any ui um, and if you decide oh you know what i don't want to target that environment after all or i want to reuse this code in the other environment um, right it's it's pretty easy to to for any form say for example where you find with the default rendering um, you just change which plugin, which rendering plugin you use, and you're using a different environment, right? You say, I want to render for React Native. Now you can use the exact same RAD components mm -hmm. in a phone that you were using on the browser. Right. So, um, just pretty, another, another pretty rad. Yeah, pretty rad. And then, you know, it's designed, the, the Pathome aspect of it, and this is a piece that's not in there yet, it's also designed for true federated data. So imagine... Uh, imagine you've got uh, a database that you own that has your user's information, but mm -hmm. you're writing an application where you're going to integrate with uh, some of their GitHub stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they authorize you with, with a GitHub token or whatever, right, to hook you up to the GitHub API to give permission to do things to their GitHub account. Mm -hmm. Now imagine a RAD form that queries for some stuff that comes from your database and some stuff that comes from GitHub. Right, RAD is, is designed so that that can. It, this currently isn't the glue isn't there yet, but that can work um, by it resolving what needs to come from your server from it and what needs to come from GitHub from there. And when you save, forking that out as well. So being mm -hmm. able to declare a form with federated data, where you don't have to say anything in the form about how it loads or saves. You declare it in the attribute model. This attribute comes from that provider. This attribute comes from this other provider, um, and and the middleware in the save and load uh, area will automatically fork out the loads and fork out the saves um, to make that just automatically work. That that's where that's where it's going. I'm I, like I said, I'm not quite to the federated data layer yet, but um, mm -hmm. but that is that is where I would like it to be. I'd like it to be so you could have a microservices or distributed federated data architecture to an application and have it make no difference to the to what you actually put in your SPA. Um, so there is one more thing I think I would like to talk to you about, which is the guardrails. Uh, right. So this is, this is totally de-attached from the full crow and right. full crow discussion. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I come from a background of typed languages. I've been programming since the 80s and mm -hmm. you know, I, I 
I was using C in the eighties, um, and then C plus plus, and then uh, I did some dynamic language stuff. Perl came around, um, said awk, you know, all sorts of Unix bash shell scripting, yeah. um, and then Java. You know, Java was kind of the the really ground shaking technology in the mid nineties that 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 really pulled people halfway to Lisp, right? <laughs> um, very dynamic environment, garbage collection, uh, you know, really, really mind blowing. Uh, and then, you know, from there I progressed into, I kind of stuck with the type to kind of see like languages, uh, went through Scala, played some with Haskell, um, and then landed in Clojure. And I've been on the fence for years about whether I like dynamic languages better or type statically typed languages, um, mm -hmm. because they each have their, their, you know, benefits, right. Um, and we could talk at quite length as to what all, what all those, those are. Right. Uh, but, but I think clearly uh, most people agree that a, a static type system gives you a, a couple of clear advantages. One, uh, almost always they perform better, right? They compile faster and the runtime mm -hmm. performance is almost always better. Um, you can just, you, you can just optimize those better. Um, uh, now we're doing pretty good with closure, right? We we often get, especially if you write a localizer team with with primitive type annotations, you can get right in there, right? But mm -hmm. in terms of black box composition speed, now the boxing and unboxing enclosure is going to eat you up every time. So um, the other thing the static type systems uh, provide that's that's a clear advantage is if you know your domain really well and map map in the types and use algebraic data types, et cetera, et cetera, you can eliminate certain classes of runtime errors um, and, and your compiler can prove that's true, right? Mm -hmm. You can prove that you've done, you know, the, these classes of errors won't be hit at runtime. Now, now we can argue about what's the value of that. <laughs> yeah. Just because you can prove something doesn't mean it's necessarily valuable. And I, I think people who have experienced it would, would argue that it's valuable. Um, but but this is where it lands us in the gray area of well how valuable what are the pros and cons right I have to write all those types and understand all this complex type notation to to get that advantage does it actually you know does it actually buy me uh, something in terms of the true accounting of my business right mm -hmm. I pay my developers all these hours of time to develop this type based stuff to prevent some runtime errors okay who measured how much those were costing our company before we started paying for that. Right. This to me, this is the real discussion. It's it's <laughs> it, it usually for me comes down to uh, accounting. Right. I've got a limited yeah. number of hours to do do stuff with in my life. Um, if if doing that thing takes me twice as long to get something that really only saves me one or two hours of pain or a few support calls, maybe it wasn't worth it. Right. That's that's the balance I'm trying to play. So the the pain that I think a lot of people experience, and I, I have experienced uh, in Clojure and Clojure Script, is that um, you know you do your REPL-driven de development, uh, you can get your algorithm right pretty quickly, right, doing that. Uh, you can then codify that into a test to try to prevent uh, regressions. Um, but very often, you, you skip the throwing it in a test, and you just like throw it together with REPL, you throw it in your code, uh, you run it, it runs fine. Uh, you don't necessarily poke at it for very many angles, right? You just had one like happy path thought in mind mm -hmm. and, and you spit it out there. And then, you know, sometime down the line, somebody runs it 
in a way that you didn't expect and it crashes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a hassle. And, and the error message it gives you is often horrific, right? Can't convert long to iSeq. All right, well, once you know what that means, you, you know, all right, well, I passed a number somewhere I was expecting a sequence, fine. I'll go look for places where that could have happened. But it's, it's painful. So guardrails is, um, the only reason it exists is, uh, so basically Ghost Wheel is, is a project by George Lipov um, mm -hmm. that does very much what I wanted. Well, it does some of what I wanted. Um, uh, um, it basically makes it easier to put specs with a function um, and instrument mm -hmm. those functions uh, in a way that's just more convenient. So those of you who've done a played with spec and generative testing, uh, what you typically do is you write a function and then in that file or in some other file, you write an F spec and you say, here's what it takes, here's what it returns. And here's some guard functions that basically say how things, sh you know, should, should work, right? This, the return value is always odd or the return value is always between this and this, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then you can optionally instrument the functions, which basically just goes through and changes all the vars and wraps the functions uh, uh, so that if they're called in a way that doesn't match that spec, they throw an exception, right? So that's that's basically the, okay. the idea. And so then in generative testing, uh, you can use those specs to then run the functions and try to see if, you know, throwing random data at them causes them to violate their right. condition function, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, your condition functions have to be pretty beefy in order to get good testing results out of that. I, I don't want to talk a whole lot about generative testing, but it's, it's a challenging uh, thing to do. But you can get some, some utility out of it. But for me, the primary thing I, was, I, I looked at when I saw the specs was, well, you know, it'd be really nice is if when I'm running my program, it would just tell me those errors. Well, that's what ST instrument does, right? If you call instrument, it goes through all the namespaces and adds code to your functions that checks the specs. And if the specs don't match on call, uh, it throws an exception. Mm -hmm. Now, instrument doesn't check the return value. So if you want to get the full kind of utility out of it, you use uh, another library called Outstrument <laughs> that, that uh, makes sure that it throws on inputs or outputs that are invalid. And so now as you're playing with your application, right at runtime, if some sideways data that you didn't think of flows through your system, uh, you get an exception saying, hey, yeah, this doesn't match up. Well, that was all fine and good. Um, uh, and, and, and Ghost Wheel also did this really nice thing where he invented this thing he calls G-Spec uh, instead of F-Spec. And it's basically an extra vector you can put after your argument list. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's like this compact notation where you can specify the spec so you don't have to maintain that spec in some other file. It, it stays up to date. It's easier to read. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was this nice little notation. So I liked those two things, right? Uh, the other thing that happens is because this is a dynamic language, say you're in closure script and you have a hot code reload happen, well, your instrument was just lost on all those things that hot code reloaded. So then you have to re -re remember to call ST instrument. Well, with Ghost Wheel, the macro reinstalls the instrumentation on each function as it loads. So now that's fixed. So Ghost Wheel really fixed a few things that I wanted out of, out of that particular way of using specs, right? It made it so I could easily add the spec to the function, it would stay up to date, and its syntax checks it to make sure, oh, right, you've got two arguments, you say you've got two arguments, all that's good. Um, it can runtime instrument it by choice. I can turn it on or off. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I can do is via a, a configuration, I can tell it not to generate 
the 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 tool, the instrumentation and not generate the spec. And in ClojureScript, that's important because every spec you generate can't be dead code eliminated. It's a side right. acting sort of thing, and so that fixes the code bloat aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those were all great. But then I realized after using it that way for a little while that hey, this is nice, but oftentimes when it throws the exception, what's wrong is my spec, not my function, right? I just didn't I didn't think the spec through, and the mm-hmm. function is actually right, but the spec's wrong. And so now I've crashed my application while I'm trying to develop it um, for kind of a silly reason. Um, George had gone offline, like he wasn't about, and I couldn't talk to him about patching ghost wheels. So guardrails actually exists as a fork of ghost wheel because the thing I wanted to change was I wanted it to give me warnings. I didn't want it to actually instrument the function to throw, mm-hmm. to check this stuff, tell me if it was wrong nicely, but leave my application running just fine. Right, so more an advisory role, um, and so I've got it in, in guardrails. It's basically set where you can tell it to throw or not throw. So in tests, in test mode, like if I'm running automated tests, I have it throw. I want the test to fail if the if the spec's not right. And in development mode, when I'm working, I don't want it to throw. I just want it to to give me an error in my console so I can see, oh yeah, something's messed up there, um, and try to figure it out. Um, so that's kind of both why guardrails exists and how it differs from differs from ghost wheel right it's it's kind of meant to just be this this runtime helper of as i'm developing it'd be kind of nice to know if if something i'm asserting should be the case in in the shape of my data isn't the case. And, and i find a lot of issues using this thing right it really helps now one of the downsides of it is specs can be really slow to check and so it can really impact performance um, and so that's, that's, well, there are two major downsides. It really impacts performance. Um, if your specs are expensive, it doesn't always, but it can. Um, so for example, Fulcro on a slow native device, uh, with guardrails enabled, um, you know, might perform, you know, 10 times worse. You know, like you might see like a one or two second delay between screens, like that sort of like really sluggishness just because the spec checking is so expensive. Um, so I'm currently working, actually, uh, in the background here on a on a. It's more of a going to probably be a commercial product um, because it's going to have a lot more to it. Um, uh, but it was basically inspired by guardrails. So the two problems that guardrails has in my in my view are one, it's a runtime based check. If I don't go and run that code path, I don't get any sort of checking. Mm-hmm. Even if it fails, I don't really understand why it failed. Right, I have to go try to comprehend the code around it. So it's not quite getting me to the static type checker level, right? If I screw up my types in a typed language, um, I get kind of line level errors, right? Like like in Java, right? If you're working in Java and you know Java, um, it does all sorts of static analysis. Like if you've got a, a field in a class that uh, uh, could be null and you use it in a place where you know, it being null would be a problem, you'll actually get like a warning indicator. Hey, this could be null. Are you sure, you know, this got initialized, mm-hmm. um, right? It can kind of help you out with, with some information. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got core typed, um, which, you know, you've got to go through and annotate everything with types and it's a real hardcore static type system. And yeah. I find that not very tractable to use, to be honest, um, right? I'd rather just program in, in a typed language if, if I really wanted that level of, of overhead. Um, 
and we've got linters like CLJ Condo and and such, but those can't give you anything but kind of the the trivial analysis of of things, right? You you called this with the wrong arity or whatever, right? My my ID, you know, cursive already does that for me, so I'm not. Those tools aren't aren't kind of hacking it for me. Guardrails does sort of fit this niche where I get a little bit more like a type system without huge overhead. How would I use guardrails? What's like, how does it look like in my closure code? Like how yeah. you... So what you do is you say, for example, you want to write the sign function. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd, you'd require the namespace. And then the, the, instead of using def in, you use a greater than symbol def in. It's just a different macro that emits a def in, but it emits okay. the specs. So you'd say greater than def in sign, you know, bracket for your angle. Uh, bracket is your parameters. Then you do another vector and you'd say something like double question mark and then an arrow, like equal sign, greater than sign, uh, double mm-hmm. question mark, right? So you're saying it takes a double and it returns a double. I, I double, yeah, you said like double, I said double question marks, you know what I mean? You, you actually name the spec of what it gets in, an arrow, the spec of what it returns. And then you can use sort of the mathematical notation of like where clauses, you know, vertical bar, uh, so, for example, you could say vertical bar right after that second double, and then a lambda that says negative 1.0, less than or equal, percent sign, less than or equal, 1.0, right? The return value has got to be between negative 1 and 1. I see. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you could, you could say everything you can say basically in an F spec in a much more compact notation. Mm-hmm. And if you've got guardrails enabled, so there's there's a separate like configuration step you do to turn it on. Um, and that's just described in the docs. If it's turned on, it emits the spec and it instruments the function if you've told it to. And if it's turned off, it just emits a regular def in. It's no different than regular def in. You just have this extra vector hanging out there saying what the signature is. Mm-hmm. So it's nice documentation, right? You can just glance at the function and see, oh, right, that takes a double, returns a double. Um, but it's also something that can then emit the spec. And then as the program's running, if it's turned on and and it finds one of those specs doesn't match, then it just reports an expound um, message describing what's wrong, right? The the argument is a string where it's supposed to be a supposed to be a double, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So uh, that's all there is to using it. It's it's actually mm-hmm. you know trivial to integrate into your application, and again helps with the uh, just the spec management aspect of it. And um, error messages. And error messages. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, the, the the two weaknesses in my view are. Uh, it's only going to tell you a problem if you actually run the code, right? So if you've got a fairly large application, what are you going to click through every single, you know, combination of features to see if you get a, a problem? Uh, and the other issue uh, uh, is that it's not any sort of line level reporting that kind of helps you figure out what's wrong, right? So like mm-hmm. a static type system. So those those are the two weaknesses. And that's, I'm currently building a project I'm, I'm calling Guardrails Pro, um, some collaborators that uh, intends to give you line level reporting detail, um, but not, oh, sorry, the third weakness was runtime overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it makes your program run slower to do it this way. Mm-hmm. So I'm building something that's, that's trying to eliminate all three of those problems. It won't affect your runtime performance during development. It won't affect your development workflow at all. It'll mm-hmm. give you a lot more information about what's potentially wrong with your program based on the specs. Is it, it can do a whole program analysis and give you messages about anything that that looks wrong in your program, but not on your development time expense. So it's doing it in a separate runtime. 
right? So think of it like static analysis, but using specs. There's actually a project out there by Alan Rohner called uh, Spectrum mm-hmm. uh, that's that's trying to do something similar. I'm taking a, a different approach, um, and I, I think you'll be. I think I think the closure community will be very happy with the the result that we end up with. Uh, I'm excited about the the possibilities here. So if I'm interested in guardrails, is there any maybe subscription list where I could just sign up and then get an update if this is ready or what's the status? What's the best way to follow this? Um, probably just following the guardrails project itself. Just go on GitHub um, okay. to the guardrails repository under Fulcralogic. So Fulcralogic's an org. So just github.com slash Fulcralogic slash guardrails. Um, mm-hmm. And you could just, uh, you know, star that and follow it. And uh, um I'm sure I will update the README on that as as the pro version of that evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, hopefully we'll have we'll have a, a little better uh, error message uh, story and and development story around mistakes that we make over time to our applications on a whole program uh, on a whole program basis as a result of that. Sounds exciting. Yeah. I'm very excited about that one. I think that I think that's been my one biggest complaint about closure and closure script. And I think from the surveys, a lot of other people's complaint as well is just the error messages are 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 difficult to deal with. Uh, it's hard for beginners because they make mistakes and nothing you know tells them what they're doing wrong or how they're doing it wrong or right. There, there really aren't any pointers to this line of code is probably wrong for this reason. And mm-hmm. I think I have a solution for that. That's that's going to be. Uh, pretty good and pretty usable and won't have the kind of of weight to it and overhead that you see in static type systems or the runtime overhead you see in, in guardrails itself. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's the goal. So yeah, it's been fun talking about all of this stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time and just chat about Fulcrow and guardrails. And yeah, I look forward to hearing about those projects. So yeah, thanks for having me on. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.